You're listening to the Fellowship on Broadway podcast from First Baptist Nashville. I'm glad you're here today. Um, the last the last three weeks, we have been in a series in the Book of Acts, and we've 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 taken three weeks to cover two chapters, and and there's a lot going on in those two chapters. So we really shoved it in there, and I gave you some homework. Um, and really, we're seeing what's happening when this this early first movement of Christ followers was forming, um, in the what we call like the early church. Um, today, we're going to pick up the pace even a little bit more, though, because today we're going to cover chapters three and four. So we've taken three weeks to do two chapters. Now we're going to do two chapters in one day. Um, I was a little bit overwhelmed when I sat down and, and started working on this message. It's it's a lot to cover, two entire chapters, and, and I'm going to give you some homework again. Um, but then I was listening to a podcast a couple days after I started working on this, and I heard one of my favorite theologians make this statement. The Bible is not written to be read in little bits. Think about that. The Bible is not written to be read in little bits. We come up with verses so we can make it easier for us to find something, but these guys didn't write the Bible with verses. They just wrote the Bible. And, and I, I think it's quite necessary for us to focus on um, specific verses and focus on even particular words as we study the Bible. That makes a lot of sense. But it's also good to recognize the larger scope and to step back, right, and see what's going on. We've talked about that a couple times, that particularly in Acts, you step back and it helps you see the larger themes, how the book begins with conversation about the kingdom of God, and it ends with conversation about the kingdom of God. So that's kind of the underlying theme of, of what's happening. We've talked about how we have to step back and see it as a companion piece to Luke's gospel, because it's a two-volume work. It's not, it's not two separate entities. Um, and so when we do that, when we get the wider view, we, we get a little bit of depth. We get a little bit of, of new meaning, and I think that's important. And so what we're doing today is we're covering two chapters, which is not the entire book of Acts, but it's we're backing up a little bit from just a, a collection of verses, and we're seeing how these two chapters form kind of a larger framework of scenes. And, and it really makes sense in this context, because what happens in 3 and 4 is all connected. So the first thing that happens is that there's a healing in, in Luke 3, verses 1 through 10. Peter and John um, meet a lame beggar at the temple, and he is healed. We're going to read that in a moment. And then in verses 11 through 26 of chapter 3, Peter preaches this sermon kind of explaining what happened. They go into the temple, and people are shocked, and he tells them what happened. That's be, he tells, It's connected to the healing, so he preaches the sermon. And because he preaches the sermon... He and John get arrested, and so chapter 4, it starts with about 22 verses of this trial, if you will, before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, where they're being questioned about what they did healing the man and why they were preaching the sermon that they were preaching. And then they get let go, and they run because they got arrested, and they run and tell their friends what happened. And they have this prayer where they pray about what happened, and they pray about everything that had happened over the course of those two days. And then in the last section of, of chapter 4, the last six verses, 32 through 37, Luke gives us another one of those summaries. The, the sermon we did last week was about the summary, the first summary in Luke that took place at the end of chapter 2. Well, here at the end of 4, we have another one of those summaries where he describes the, the common life of the believers at that time. He, he puts these little summaries all throughout the book of Acts to kind of give us little points along the way. So, so what we see here in, in these two chapters, I think, are five common um, literary themes or genres of writing that we see throughout the New Testament scriptures. The first one is a miracle story. So that's the first 10 verses of, of, of chapter 3 where they heal the beggar. That's followed by a sermon, the second big sermon in the book of Acts. Peter preaches here at the temple. 
And then we have a common theme, a common genre, which is conflict. There's conflict where the, the Jewish leaders and the new disciples of Jesus are, are going at it a little bit. That's followed by a prayer. We see prayers throughout the New Testament scriptures. And then the last thing we see, like I said, is, is the summary. So theoretically, we could, we could be here for five weeks. Or I could preach a two-hour sermon, right? And you don't want that. And this series could last. I have a friend whose church in Omaha, Nebraska, did a two-year series through the book of Luke. And they just really dug deep. And we're doing this a little bit faster than that. And, and it makes sense in these two chapters to do this all together. And we're going to fly through this. Because it's all connected. It's, all one, it's five different things that are one cohesive story. And it starts with Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. So I'm going to read this for you. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That's 3 p.m. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Acts 3, verses 1 through 10. So this passage is, is about the healing of a lame beggar outside the temple. And it is the underlying basis or the subtext of everything that's about to play, take place over the next two chapters. Peter and John are walking into the temple. They see this guy. There's this weird interaction where, where Peter's like, look at me. And the guy looks at him. He's like really focused. And he says, in the name of Jesus, be healed. The guy stands up. He walks. And, and everybody is astounded. There's a couple things I want to point, to you, point out to you about this text of Scripture. First thing is the location. Where did this take place? The temple. It's at the gate outside the temple. I'm sure you know this, but just in case. Jesus was not a Christian. (laughs) Jesus was Jewish, right? Jesus was Jewish. His life and his ministry unfolded in the first century context of Judaism. The scriptures Jesus taught, what we call the Old Testament, were the ancient texts of the Jewish people. And the first followers of Jesus, these people who followed Jesus as early as this movement that we're studying in the book of Acts, was initially made up of Jewish people that remained Jews. They're still going to the temple every single day. They are faithful Jewish people. I I keep reminding you that this is the beginning of our story, and we have to recognize that our story began as a sect of Messianic Judaism, right? These first followers of Jesus were Jews who said, wait, the one that the scriptures have been talking about is this guy, and this changes things for us. But they were still faithful Jews. They were still participating in the temple. They were still participating in the life of Jewish culture, but they just believed that Jesus was the Messiah that everyone had been waiting for, the one that would save his people from their sin, the one that would restore all of creation. That was the difference. And, and, but the divergence of Christianity and Judaism into two separate things 
had not happened yet. It, it was something that was starting to happen because of this. But it took many years, decades later, before the, there was like a, a, an official split. And it's, the timeline is very tricky because it's not one specific thing that happened. It was a slow burn for them to say, okay, Judaism over here, Christianity over here. So, so my, my point in saying that is that they're still going to the temple because in ancient Judaism, we talked about this in one of our earlier sermons, the temple is the place where God's presence lived. The temple is the place where heaven and earth overlapped and God's presence was on earth. And it's where, it's where the most holy place on earth was because that's where the Spirit of God lived. Yet, what's happening here? This miraculous moment, a man is physically healed, takes place where? Not inside the temple, but at the gate outside. Things are starting to change. Do you remember what happened at Pentecost? The disciples were gathered in the upper room, and the Holy Spirit moved in, and it came, and one of the symbols was fire. And in the Old Testament, fire is a symbol of the presence of God that appeared at the temple and the tabernacle before it. But at Pentecost, the fire appeared resting on the followers of Jesus. And now, here at the temple gates, a man is healed by those same followers. So the presence of God, where heaven meets earth, is no longer confined inside the temple. It's starting to stretch out. It's going with the people of God. I think what Luke is trying to show us is that what happened at Pentecost is now, is now carrying forward into their lives. That the, the power of the Holy Spirit is active with these followers of Jesus. And he's helping us see the symbolism continued that these people, the one who carried Jesus with them, are the new temple of God. It's not confined to the Jewish religious landmark. It is with the people who call themselves followers of Christ. The community of believers as the new temple is fulfilling God's purpose for the Jerusalem temple. Do you see how that's, the, the connection is made there? It's the place where heaven meets earth and where people encounter the healing presence of God that is not in the temple any longer, it's branching out. And what we see in Acts when we step back even further is that it's going to keep branching out. It's going to keep going further, that this holy presence is going to keep spreading through the followers of Christ. Everything is changing. The second thing I want you to notice about this first uh, little passage in chapter 3 is what Peter said in verse 6. I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. The man is asking for alms. He's asking for money. And Peter says, I don't, I don't have any of that, but I have the name of Jesus. Peter doesn't ask the man about his faith, which we see in other stories. He doesn't make some big statement about how he has been empowered by the Holy Spirit to heal him. No, he says, I have the name of Jesus. It's important to understand that, that in Jewish, I, I think the, the best way for us to understand this in our context is to say, like, like, my wife, Becca, works at Biscuit Love. That's our family's, you guys know that? Biscuit Love, you guys been there? Tourists, have you been to Biscuit Love? Go support me, retirement account time. Um, <laughs> It's a, it's a hipster biscuit restaurant. It's fantastic. But my wife works there. Her sister owns it. And so sometimes, back in the early days, when all the kids who worked there knew who I was, I'd say to people, hey, go to, go to Biscuit Love and tell them that Tim sent you. And maybe they'd get some free bonuts or something like that. And, and that's what we do. We say to someone, hey, go see so-and-so. Tell them I sent you. And when they say my name or they say your name, that gets them like special treatment, right? 
In, in, in ancient Jewish culture, the name expresses the very nature of someone's being. It's not just, hey, I'm giving you something special because you know me. The name is the essence of someone, the, the power that a person has. The, the, whatever they have, their name represents that. So when we sing, Jesus, you are worthy of your name, we're saying he's worthy of everything that his name represents, his power, the purpose of his life. When Jesus says, in the name of Jesus, he's calling on the very essence of Jesus to come in that moment and heal this man. And so the only way that we can be healed, Peter doesn't say, I have nothing that I can give you that's going to make your life better. You're looking for money. I don't have any of that. But what I can, I can give you is the name of Jesus because that's the only thing that matters. And so in the name of Jesus, be healed. So the healing comes through the invocation of, is that the right word? He's invoking the name of Jesus. And that's where the power comes from. That's where the healing comes from. It's, it's, it's the essence of Jesus. And is, is, are you following me with that? I, mean, I felt like that was a little bit heady when I was writing it. But his name represents everything that he is. I've seen this a couple of heads nod. Are we okay? And this is exactly what Peter then goes into in the second sermon. Notice that they've now moved into the temple. It says that the man followed them into, into the temple. So in verses 11 through 26, which is, this is the part of your homework for the week, I want you to read Peter's sermon because it's pretty rad. The crowd is amazed at what they've seen. Like they just watched a dude that they know really well because they established that he's there all the time. And then he stands up and starts dancing around, singing and praising God. And they're like, is that, is that Buddy? Buddy the, Buddy the lame guy? Um, that was funnier than you acted. Is it, his name wasn't Buddy. But they're like, hey, is that, is that, that's the guy. What's, what's going on? How, like he can't do that. Something's weird. And they start looking at Peter and John. And Peter goes, don't look at us. Jesus did that. The name of Jesus did that. So now they are in the temple. They're not outside the temple there anymore. They're in the temple, and Peter just goes off. The sermon here is, if you go back and read the sermon after Pentecost in chapter 2, it's, it's very similar. It's a lot of the same themes, but it goes even deeper. He systematically explains how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. So in the temple, the place of Judaism, Peter stands up and goes, this thing that you're focused on already happened. It was that dude over there. He talks about Abraham. He talks about Moses. He reiterates the fact that he did in the first sermon that the resurrection is really important and that Jesus is not only resurrected, but he is Lord. He is Christ the Lord. Peter clearly, based on this sermon, Peter clearly sees the Old Testament as a story that was pointing forward. The Old Testament was a story that was pointing forward to something that God was going to do. Here he talks about the life of Abraham through, through Abraham's descendants and his family. Something that Moses, he mentions, that Elijah and Isaiah and the prophets were pointing to as well. Something that he talks about would restore all of creation. And Peter says, y'all, that was Jesus. That something was Jesus. And then he goes, and you all killed him. He says that in there. He points his finger at them and says, you killed him. He, he then kind of lets up a little bit and says, well, God used that for a purpose. But the subtext of this healing, if we talked about how the subtext of the entire two, two chapters is this guy getting healed. What's lying underneath that, Peter says, is Jesus is the Messiah. His name is where the power comes from. This is what this is about. And y'all, he's saying this in the middle of the Jewish temple. He's going for it. And it gets him arrested. That's where chapter 4 goes, right? So chapter 4, Peter and John get arrested. Let's read this. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. As they were speaking to, all, to the people, 
The priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection at all. The Pharisees did, but they didn't want Jesus to be the one. And so they are annoyed, it says. I love that. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. If they got there at 3 o'clock and now it's evening, Peter's been preaching for a while. You know, he's not, we don't have, we have like 30-minute sermons here. He's one of those other churches. Um, <laughs> it says, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to 5,000. So a couple chapters ago, we say this movement is 3,000 people. Now it's growing. It's 5,000 people. It's nearly doubled in just a few days. Verse 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and, we just, John and Alexander. That's like all the big wigs of the Jewish priest system. They inquired, oh, sorry, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? See the theme here? The name is the, where the power comes from. They, they understand that. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This, is the, this Jesus, he says, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I'm, I'm getting emotional because this is the same Peter who just a few weeks ago said, no, I don't know him. I don't know that guy. I'm not one of his followers. And here he is in the middle of the temple looking at the dudes who killed Jesus, saying, he is the Messiah. With all boldness saying, he is the Messiah. The next verses say that the high priest looked at Peter and they recognized that he was an unlearned man. The Greek word is idiote. That he, he shouldn't have been speaking to them like this, but they says they recognized that he had been with Jesus. They were astounded by his boldness. These, these, these last two verses, I don't want to miss them. In verses 11 and 12 at the beginning of this, this response from Peter He's quoting Psalm 18, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then he adds in verse 12, he, he adds on to that. He says, salvation comes from no one else, for there is no other name in heaven by which we must be saved. No other name. There's the theme of the name again. The name holds the power. I think this, this building metaphor quoting uh, Psalm 118, quoting what Jesus said this about himself in, in the Gospel of Luke. It, it's the essence of the early teaching. What we've, what we've been getting out here is that the new Christians are going, yes, Jesus was this, this one that we've been waiting for. And this is the essence of early Christianity. This is the essence of their story of, of, what, of how they saw their faith developing. A stone that was rejected by builders as, as unworthy or unacceptable is then reclaimed by someone else and not only included in their building, but placed in a very critical location as the cornerstone of that building's foundation. Do you see the power in that? But here's the deal. I, I think that we tend to think of this in religious terms, right? We think of Jesus as the stone and the Jewish leaders or the Jewish people as the builders that rejected him. And then the rejection is their literal rejection of him as the Messiah. 
they, re- they don't believe him, and now the new followers of Jesus believe that he's the Messiah, and so he's their cornerstone. And so we think of it as, as like religion. We, we, build, we build our religion based on this statement. Go with me here. Peter has repeatedly, in these, in these sermons to the people, as well as in his defense of, of what's happening to the leaders, he's kind of pointed the finger at them and said, you, you killed this guy. You, you did this. He's calling them out for the death of Jesus. So what if we... What if we think about this verse, this, this Psalm 118 passage about the stone? What if we think of it not in terms of religion, but in terms of theology, in terms of truth, right? Go with me. Jesus is still the stone. The Jewish people are, are still the builders that rejected him, but the rejection is not they rejected him as their Messiah. The rejection is they killed him. The rejection is his death. And so the cornerstone is not Jesus being chosen by us. It's not about our decision. The cornerstone is that God raised him from the dead. It's deeper than just what we decide we feel about him. It is, he was rejected, he was killed, but God raised him from the dead. We don't have to choose to make him the cornerstone. He is the cornerstone because God raised him from the dead. Does that make sense? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is theological. It it is is how the foundations of the earth are built. It's not, I get to decide this because I think it's cool. It's deeper than that. And this then explains what Peter says in the next verse, which is salvation comes from no one else because there is no other decision to be made. There is no other choice to be made because he is the foundation. God set that into place. God placed Jesus as the cornerstone of a new foundation. You don't get to find it somewhere else because it isn't anywhere else. There's no other place it can be found. The cornerstone of what we believe, says Peter, is the resurrection of Jesus. He keeps saying this in these first few chapters of Acts. And then he talks about salvation. The salvation word is going to play an important role in the movement of the early church. And it's masterful writing from Luke. And I, didn't, I couldn't read this on my own because I'm not smart enough. When I read the commentaries, all the commentaries are waving their hands at you as a, as a, as a, as a preacher saying, don't miss the fact that the word salvation here in Greek has two meanings. It literally means to be saved, like we think it does, like to, to save someone, to rescue them but it also means to be made whole. We're not just saving you. We are making you whole. It's complete wholeness. That is what salvation is. What happened to the beggar? He was made whole. He wasn't just saved. He was made whole. How was he saved? How was he made whole? By the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus. It's physical wholeness, but it's also spiritual wholeness. It's something so much deeper than whatever ails us. And all of that is found in the cornerstone whom God placed in the name of Jesus. In verse 20, um, in chapter 4, the, <laughs> the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, they don't really have anything to say because the dude's healed. You know, they're kind of stuck. And so they kind of slap the disciples on the wrist and they say, Peter and John, just stop it. Stop it. And then get out of here. This is their response. We cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. I can't stop. Because this is the foundation. This is the cornerstone. They run back to their friends And they huddle together and they tell them what has happened with the healing and the sermon. And this is what they do. 
chapter 4, verses 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They didn't come home and tell everybody what happened and then pray and ask God to kill all their enemies or ask God to make everybody be nice to them or ask that he would stop the persecution. Disciples knew this is part of what we signed up for. And so what did they ask for? The guy who just stood up in front of the men who killed Jesus and said, Jesus is the Messiah. He said, God, give me even more boldness. And Lord, keep showing up. Keep performing wondrous and miraculous things. And how do they ask God to do this? In the name of Jesus. There is no other name than Jesus. God has set him as the foundation of all that is good and true. And our choice is to say, will I go to that name in every moment and in every breath? Close your eyes for a minute. I want to ask you a couple questions. Try to place yourself in these two chapters of Acts. Where do you, where do you identify yourself in these two chapters? Are you, are you the beggar? Do you need healing? Do you need to be made whole today? Because I think the truth is that you will only find whatever you're looking for we might not have that, but the only thing you need is the name of Jesus. Are you one of the onlookers who were amazed, who were confused, who were trying to figure out what's going on, what, what's happening here with these Jesus people? The answers are found in Jesus. Just like Peter said, it's not about us. We don't have anything figured out, but Jesus has it all figured out. So come to Jesus. Maybe today you see yourself in these religious leaders. Maybe when Jesus is doing something new, you find yourself saying, we need to shut this down. This is not the way it's always been, and I don't like this. Is it possible that you have rejected the cornerstone? Jesus says, Come back to me. Or maybe, and I hope you do, and I hope we all will, we, we identify with these disciples. There's nothing special about them. They were not educated well. They were not um, really fit for the task by any metric that we can think of. But they couldn't help speaking about what they'd seen and they'd heard. And the only thing they cared about was the name of Jesus. And so they said, God, give us more boldness. God, keep working in our midst. In the name of Jesus, keep showing up and allow us to be part of it. 
And Lord, that is our prayer today. Would you give us boldness? Would you give us the ability, Lord, to trust you and not trust ourselves? And Lord Jesus, in your name, would you keep showing up? Would you do miraculous and wonderful things? Jesus, we want more of you. We want more of you in this church. We want more of you in this city. And we want more of you in our lives. We don't want to settle for anything that is anything other than that, God. We want more of you in the name of Jesus. Would you move? In the name of Jesus, would you stir us up? In the name of Jesus, would you send us out? In the name of Jesus, God, would you draw us together? Jesus, no other name. Jesus, no other name. If that's your prayer this morning, would you stand? Let's sing to him, Jesus. Fellowship on Broadway is a worship service at First Baptist Church in downtown Nashville, and we'd love for you to join us on Sundays.